Uh, hello, this is Robert Rickover at Body Learning, and today my guest is Neville Short, who is an Alexander Technique teacher who lives in Glasgow, Scotland, and we're going to have a conversation today based on a blog that he wrote uh, a few weeks ago, uh, distinguishing between teaching and learning, and he's going to do most of the talking about that, but I may have a, a few things to, to add. Um, Neville, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Robert. Thank you. Well, it's good to talk to you. Uh, I was very, very fascinated by that blog, as I think we, we discussed earlier. Uh, but before we get to it, uh, no, you know what? We don't have to give our listeners an Alexander definition, I'm wrong, because we actually uh, are talking to Alexander teachers. So we could skip that okay. and go right to um, the blog, uh, the learning and um, teaching and learning distinction that you um, talked about in that blog and how it how you got to that way of thinking and what what are some of the implications of that for Alexander teachers? Sure. Well, I don't want to start off with the assumption that everybody who's listening has accessed the blog. So to put it into context, uh, Carl Rogers in the 1950s was already a highly esteemed psychologist who also trained other psychologists, including classroom teaching. And he was asked to give a lecture at Harvard and what he delivered was this beautiful uh, diatribe, in a way, about how damaging teaching could be. He kept reiterating in this speech of his how important learning was and how damaging uh, teaching could be. And I just want to quote a, a couple of sentences from it. He says, when I try to teach as I sometimes do, I'm appalled by the results, which seem a little more than inconsequential because sometimes the teaching appears to succeed. And when this happens, I find that the results are damaging. It seems to cause the individual to distrust his own experience and to stifle significant learning. Hence, I have come to feel that the outcomes of teaching are either unimportant or hurtful. And I think that's an astounding claim for someone as qualified as he was to make. But in, in an institution that where uh, presumably a lot of teaching goes on. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, where he, and where he's being trained and paid as a teacher. Right. But the point is that, to put it in another way, I think that he sees his vocation not strictly speaking as somebody who teaches, but as somebody who facilitates the learning of other people. Mm -hmm. And this is the difference, because for many people, teaching and learning are much the same thing. But in reality, they are worlds apart, and you can have a hell of a lot of one happening without any of the other. Anybody can learn a lot in the absence of a teacher mm -hmm. and anybody can teach a lot in the absence of anybody learning from them. Mm -hmm. So it's important for us 
if we consider ourselves as teachers to make sure that what we're doing is facilitating the pupils learning not simply teaching what we think is important for us to teach or what we think we're good at teaching because it isn't about the teacher the teacher isn't the person who's doing the learning or even making the learning at best they're facilitating the learner the learning of the other person well you know when i first um read that distinction that you made um I I was immediately uh, in, mindful of a lot of my experiences taking lessons with teachers over the years, and some of them, uh, even sort of master teachers, as it were, seem to have a protocol, the, a pretty standardized protocol for the lesson. And it didn't really vary a lot from lesson to lesson. And as far as I could tell, it didn't vary a lot from student to student. Now, I'm guessing that's kind of a crude example of what you're talking about. Well, whether it's crude or not, it's completely relevant to what happens. Sorry, it's completely relevant to what happens in in, an Alexander technique. And what makes it in a cruel kind of way, highly entertaining, is that what you've described as a protocol is in reality another habit. So we ha- we can have the situation where, I think as most people would agree, what we're trying to help break are pupils' habits. But if the teacher does that in a strictly habitual way, there's probably something wrong with the process. But one of the beauties of looking at what the pupil needs or wants to learn is that when the focus is on the pupil, it's more likely, uh, it isn't an absolute, but it's more likely that the teaching will be different because the pupil's needs will change. Now, it's very easy to say this. It's much harder to have the skills to do it. But uh, I, I think what you've described is a perfect example of the difference between teaching and learning. Right. Well, and but then, you know, thinking about the point, the point you were making, the central point you were making in that blog, uh, the question that kind of immediately occurred to me is how, how uh, can I prevent falling into that trap? as it were, of um, how how can I avoid that problem? And uh, what are some practical suggestions for teachers? And I guess we're talking primarily to Alexander teachers and and students, but I imagine that most of what you're going to say applies to any kind of teaching. It, It does, but I think there is at least one particular trap that Alexander teachers are a bit more likely to fall into Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking of a particular anecdote because about a year ago I visited a Alexander technique teacher called Danny McGowan who works down in the south of England and who has run teacher training courses now he told me this uh, anecdote about his own experience and the point was to do, if I remember right, uh, with uh, um, 
hypermobile joints. So he was working with a, a young lady. She was a dancer. She had hypermobile joints. The sessions were going very well. But then during one lesson, she was honest enough to say to him that she was probably going to quit the lessons. And he asked her why. And she said that she was beginning to feel that she, she was actually worse after the lessons. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there is a potential set script that many Alexander teachers would now apply. They would say, well, you probably think you're not feeling as well, but that's probably your faulty sensory appreciation. I'm the teacher. Let's just stick with it. Mm-hmm. Or, or you're making really good changes, but it's taking a while for you to your body to adjust, and there'll be some transitory discomfort. Absolutely. In <laughs> other words, keep taking the medicine. I'm the expert. Exactly. I know what I'm doing. Right now, what I loved about this example was that, in spite of all his experience, Danny thought, "Well, maybe I'm not doing the right thing." So he went back to his own premises of how he was working and realized that he was trying to lengthen this lady's joints. And then he realized they were already too long because of her condition. So he thought, I'll do something different now. I'll try to lengthen the muscle bodies instead. And when he changed his operation in that way, the uh, pupil felt a lot better and the, and the lessons continued. Now, mm-hmm. I don't want to potentially go down a diversion now about the rights and wrongs of what he was actually doing. The point for me was that he listened to the pupil. Right. He acted on the pupil's feedback. And the least you could then say was that because the pupil then returned, he was in a, in a position to help her further. Whereas if he hadn't listened, the least you could say was she wasn't going to return. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I guess one thing that you, you would probably suggest for teachers is that they s- take seriously any feedback they get, even if they're not happy about it initially. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, most teachers will very readily say that the teacher-pupil relationship in Alexander Technique is essentially a reciprocal one between adults, a a relationship between equals. Mm -hmm. But if we don't take cognizance of the feedback we get, then it it becomes an asymmetric relationship. Now, of course, uh, not all the sensory feedback we get is accurate. But at the same time, some of it is. So especially, and I've been on the receiving end of this, uh, where I've felt discomfort and been told by the teacher, you know, it's not really what you think it is. It really is disenfranchising for me as a pupil to be told that I might feel uncomfortable, but I'm not. The fact is, if somebody says they feel uncomfortable, then they are. And that's going to be at, at, at least a stressor for them, um, mm-hmm. which really isn't what it's about. Exactly. Now, I know you had, uh, I think, a, maybe two or three other very specific suggestions to help teachers start thinking along the lines that you've been talking about. Sure. Well, one was um, 
uh, again, a very practical idea in terms of finding out uh, what the pupil wants. And it goes back to a Congress paper uh, that Jeremy, Jeremy Chance wrote, where he said he was talking with a very successful Alexander Technique teacher who was based in London. And he asked that person how they came to be so busy. And this teacher said, it was very simple really, he said he could categorise all his pupils into one of three different areas. Either they uh, were in pain and wanted to be fixed, or they wanted to know more about the mechanics and the dynamics of movement, or they were perhaps open to some wider kind of experience. And this teacher said uh, that what he or she did was simply to find out at his earliest opportunity which of these three categories the pupil fitted into and then to supply that need. Mm -hmm. Now, I know, I know that might feel a bit mercenary, but in any kind of um, relationship, uh, especially a, a commercial one, you have to find out uh, what the client wants. If a teacher goes into that relationship simply thinking, I know what I'm going to teach, mm -hmm. I know what I'm going to do, without finding out first what the what the pupil, what the customer wants, they probably won't have that customer for very long. Now, I'm not suggesting that the only thing that's taught to the pupil is what they say they want, mm -hmm. but if we don't teach the pupil or don't at least address what the pupil considers their needs to be, then we can't expect them to hang around for very long. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes good sense. <clears throat> What's the next one? Well, um, part of my interest in in this aspect of teaching and learning is my own qualifications, both as a secondary school teacher and as a kayak and canoeing coach. And in the UK, all coaches of kayaking and canoeing get some very solid advice on how to coach. So when we meet a kayaking pupil, the first thing we do is called profiling, where we might ask the kayaker what their competence is, but we won't make any decisions until we've seen them on the water. And it has to be on an, in an environment where they can't just coast along. It has to be in an environment where they're working in a way that's autonomous, where they have to react to things quite quickly then we know what they're really like as a kayaker and then we can figure out how they can move along the spectrum to greater competence. And in much the same way, it's very useful, very important for Alexander Technique teachers to see how people think and move before we start trying to figure out what they might want. I mean, what I would like now is actually... Uh, to work in a practice where I had to follow my client up a flight of stairs before I start talking to them because mm -hmm. at least I could see how they move before I start trying to figure out what the issue might be mm -hmm. but again I can give an example of really good Alexander Technique practice in this because I was just reading through Kelly McEvenue's book The Alexander Technique for Actors and in that she says if she's working with a theatre troupe for a number of days what she does on the first day is just observe how they go about their routine business mm -hmm. and from that she can figure out a bit more about uh, 
what they might need or want. But to go back to the first point, this is uh, these are ways of trying to figure out what learning the teacher should facilitate, what it is, where is the client, where is the pupil now, rather than going back into that protocol you mentioned earlier on, where it's kind of the sausage factor where everybody gets the same thing. Right. And it should right. also make it more interesting for the teacher because it is different and it is more present and it is more in the moment. It does require more skill, but part of the skill is in part gained by going through this process of really treating the pupil like a different individual on every time, uh, every time they're seen. Right, right. So, um, did you? There was one other point you had to make on this topic, on, on the general topic we're talking about. Yeah, or? it it was that. Um, I think there's a big difference between saying these things and doing them. It's very easy to talk this talk, and it's very difficult to walk it. Mm -hmm. And I've been in a number of Alexander Technique training courses where it was quite routine for the teacher to ask at the start of a lesson of the uh, the trainees, what would you like to do in this lesson? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's facilitating learning. I think that's almost a derogation of duty by the teacher because the pupils don't always, can't always figure out what it is they don't know. Mm -hmm. So while the drum that I'm banging on about is facilitating learning, there is a facilitation isn't just about asking somebody what they want it's also about offering choices about making suggestions rather than just asking the pupil what they want and then having the, the pupil drive it all the time because if the pupil knew all the time they wouldn't be coming to that teacher or they wouldn't be coming to that course right so yeah totally and to, um, and I think that was the what you we earlier discussed you wanted to end with basically that thought or did you have anything else you wanted to to add no i I think that's that's about me really I think yeah. if I couldn't put it across in those four examples then I can't put it across right i I think that um one thing that I'd like to add is, is based on something I just read recently um facebook post um talking about the whole concept of right and wrong and how i'm I'm sure you and all pretty much any Alexander technique teacher listening to this will will know that students like to like to ask questions like is my head in the right position or am I doing it right that kind of thing and um, obviously you want to try to nudge them away from that way of thinking but the point that one person made which I found really interesting is that you as a teacher might do well to uh, investigate yourself a little bit and see if you might not have some right wrong ideas going on in your brain about uh, about what the student is doing. Does that make sense to you? There oh, was a it, little self-examination going it, on it here. Make, it makes absolute sense and I would be surprised if any of us were without that kind of commentary. Right. And 
Absolutely, uh, yeah. And when we observe ourselves or other teachers, uh, it, it's it's kind of happening all the time. And and for me, this is one of the very interesting parts where we get very readily from the physical to the psychological because if the teacher is invested in a particular body position or movement or reaction from the student then that's going to come across to the student and they're going to pick up that there's a right way and a wrong way of doing these things I think it's I'm really glad that that uh, thread came up on the on the Facebook page because it's 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 a tricky one to tease out uh, because there are so many rabbit holes we can potentially go down mm-hmm. and as, as one of the people on the thread pointed out if we say you shouldn't say that you shouldn't do something then we're falling into the same trap of saying there's a right and a wrong way of doing this if you see what I mean yeah yeah no it's uh, it's fraught with trickiness and yeah. uh, I guess that's one of the reasons why Alexander technique teaching is an art not a science mm-hmm. yeah um, well but if we, could, if we, if we yeah. could bring it back to the start here sure uh, because if Carl Rogers when he was asked to lecture at Harvard said when I'm trying to teach as I sometimes do I'm, I'm appalled by the results then we should cut ourselves some slack if we are appalled by the results as well. Maybe sometimes we just have to do these things and and see what fo- what falls out. Uh, we we frequently, as we should, uh, ask our pupils not to beat themselves up about anything that might be happening. Uh, and to the same extent, while we should be tinkering with our own practice, we shouldn't be beating ourselves up either with how we're doing things. We just try to frame it uh, with the right positive approach of helping people and then, then learn from what happens. Absolutely. Maybe that's a good place to end our conversation. Um, my guest today has been Neville Short, an Alexander Technique teacher in Glasgow, uh, Scotland. Uh, I'll put a link to his website by the interview if you live in that area and want to want to have lessons with him. Uh, you can do that. Uh, he also the blog he on his website. I believe there's a link to your blog on your website, right? Yes, indeed. And there'll be you'll be able to find the 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 blog that kind of triggered this whole uh, podcast. I'll also put a link to. A website that will enable that will give you more information about the Alexander technique and locate a teacher anywhere in the world. So Neville, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for the opportunity, Robert. <laughs>